Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and my guest today is joining me all the way over from the UK. He is writer, director, producer, probably one of the busiest guys I've talked to in a long time, Gary Smart. Gary, welcome to the Dana Buckler Show. How are you today? I'm brilliant, thank you. It's a pleasure being on the show. Thanks for having me as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and Gary, we have a lot to talk about. I've got a lot of questions. <laughs> You've had your uh, your hands in a lot of different projects over the past 15 years, and, and I don't even know if we're going to have enough time to go over them all. So there's a few that I want to talk about. First and foremost, can you just give the listeners just a little bit about your background and let's just let's just get a little bit into, you know, how we got to where you are today and then I want to talk about one of the projects that you're working on right now. That's fine, yeah. So it's I've always been a massive film fan since as long as I can remember, I've always loved film. You know, I've never been a sporty person. I've always been, you know, sitting there watching a VHS of a horror film. And my granddad was a huge kind of horror collector. So he used to, you know, kind of loan me kind of his horror collection, Nightmare on Elm Streets and whatnot. And um, he got me into Return of the Living Dead, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, So, yes. I've always been a horror fan. I come from an area in the UK where there's probably not much going on in regards to the film industry and creative, you know, I mean, I'm from Birmingham, which is the second city in the UK, but there's not really creative buzz here. Well, there, I don't live there now. So kind of for me, it was kind of like just being a fan and just hoping obviously one day to get into the industry somehow. Uh, there was never obviously said, never kind of outlets and whatnot to get into it. So I was, you know, I've been a fan of special effects, fan of horror, fan of writing. And what happened really, I kind of, my the most favourite film ever is The Return of the Living Dead, Dan O'Bannon's 1985 classic. And when MySpace came about, I kind of latched onto that as everybody did before Facebook. MySpace was a thing to be on. And I found Beverly Randolph on there who is an actress who plays Tina in Return of the Living Dead. And, you know, I got friendly as you do. And back then it was a little bit different. I think, you know, kind of celebrities or, you know, people in, in the industry didn't mind talking to people because it was kind of like this, it was it was kind of something new, really, my, my space was. So she got really friendly to chat with me. And my favourite actor growing up as a kid was uh, Don Kaufer, who played Ernie in Return of the Dead, but he's in loads of other stuff like The Star Chamber, like... Um, a foul play, Chop Chicks and Zombie Town. I mean, the list goes on right up to, you know, Kojak and things like that and Barney Miller. So I was a huge fan of his and I tried to write to him when I was a kid, but, you know, it was always an em- a letter coming back for the post, return to sender. You know, he wasn't with the agency anymore, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, she told me she was really friendly with him still, you know, they're really close. So she got me in touch with him. And, you know, one day I got a phone quite the blue and it was Don and we became really close to be honest from then so it was weekly phone calls weekly chat i got him over to uk to do a convention over here his first ever one in the uk three or four times that she came over stayed my family because i was living at home at the time and we became really really close he became like a family member really dom and it was because of my relationship with don i decided you know let's try and celebrate return of living dead by writing a book on it because nobody had done anything about return of the dead there's loads on ramiro films you know there's a book about night, uh, night of the living dead and, and dawn of the dead but nothing on return of the living dead and I knew it was a big, you know, big cult film. So I got in touch with a friend called Christian Sellers, who used to work for a magazine called Gorezone. And we decided, you know, said, let's let's try and write this book, A Complete History of the Five Films. And it kind of snowballed from there, really. And that book was published by Plexus Publishing in the UK. And then, you know, I can go on and on, but literally, you know, over the years then, I got involved with screenings, got involved with my own documentaries, got involved with my own narrative special effects stuff as well. So it kind of, kind of it, it stemmed from really meeting Don, really. You know, he kind of said to me one day, you know, I told I told him I was interested in film. And he said, just go for it. You know, why, why sit and talk about it? Just try. And I did. And it kind of worked a little bit for us. So that's kind of the, the short version of that long story. And that's interesting, Gary, because 
you know, it's 2021 now when we're recording this, and I, I kind of look back at that time period, you know, the the early 2000s, yeah. the early aughts, and, you know, you, you mentioned that, you you know, you've always wanted to get into some aspect of the film industry, some aspect of filmmaking, and if you didn't meet him, did you see a route? Did you see a way that you were going to be able to do that? Because now, now in 2021, I mean, any, it's very easy to, you know, the technology's there and everyone can be a little bit creative, but back then it was far more challenging. So I'm just curious, what other avenues did, were you even considering? I don't think I was. I, I, you know, I loved film and I worked in education, you know, and I still work in education because, you know, the industry over here isn't that great regards to the film industry. We're trying to build our, our kind of brand up. But yeah, I started working in education when I was 19 years old. I, I left school, went to college, started working in education, in like school management, basically. So that was kind of my career path, really. And um, yeah, I genuinely believe it was it was through Don. You know, I'd loved doing special effects when I was a kid. I used to make kind of like my own stop motion movies, but there was nothing, no outlets. You know, in the 80s, there was, you know, if you were a young up and coming kind of uh, guy interested in effects or, or woman, you know, there was there was loads of like little workshops across the UK, you know, image animation being one big one in, in who did the Hellraiser films you know people just went in their portfolio and we were hired because it'd be like young and and kind of um eager but in the 90s and early 2000s there was nothing really and it what and because of doing the book we've done i was invited to a screen of night of the living dead as a guest and i was told the screen and sold out you know i was given all the kind of spiel yeah it's a, a halloween screen and we don't do a talk on, on the zombie genre i turned up and there was two people in the audience <laughs> and it was only because and you know that was a disappointment anyway but i had a conversation with somebody that night about basically saying you know, i think you know we could do a screen of return of the living dead you know and get don over and it would be successful so i took kind of a lead on that and that's when it snowballed really because getting don over them for that screening we then did one on Hellraiser, met the Hellraiser cast, and did the documentary on Hellraiser. So I, I've got everything to you know to thank Don for really and Beverly. You know, we, I've never really kind of thought about it to ask the question, but if it wasn't for him and my relationship with him, I don't think there would have been opportunities really. And I think everything that's happened to us, you know, over the last 10, 12, 15 years has been by by not luck is the wrong word coincidence serendipity things have just happened because of something else i mean everything happens for a reason sure. but it's been being the right place talking to the right person so yeah i mean i would have loved to have been involved as i said but there was nothing there was no makeup effects courses in in the uk about their natteries you know you want to be makeup you know you can go to Wee's workshop on the weekend you know now or the, the holidays you can go spend well for lockdown you go spend seven weeks doing it doing a workshop back then i my i did an assignment when i was a kid for um about special effects that was it there was and I, I did some research and probably before the internet probably really to be honest or just when the internet was coming out um or becoming popular so it, so yeah it was down to dom so let me just bring it back here uh, gary just for a moment so, so you wrote the i guess what could arguably be the definitive book on return of the living dead yeah. the 1985 that you said dan o'bannon classic film which i absolutely love and, and yeah. i'm sure at some point we're, we'll get into some kind of discussion about the film mm -hmm. but tell me how that gets you to working on more brains a return okay. to living dead the the documentary okay. which i have seen and i've got some really interesting questions yeah. just about that one so how do you transition from the book to working on the documentary okay lots of credit goes to christian sellers for the, the complete history of return of living dead you know it was christian who i mean i hadn't written anything ever before i, I knew how to interview people I, i'm quite good in with engaging with people so i kind of like i did that i did the narrative structure so i'm meeting with people met obviously got christian involved we did the book and it was, it was successful in in a sense you know I won't go to details, obviously, about we didn't 
ain't much money off it, but you know, it, we got a, a book published in the UK by a publishing house, which is well known here, and you know, that was an amazing kind of triumph for us. You know, in, uh, you know, being our first kind of kind of release. And what happened was, I kind of I got in touch with Mikey Perez. Uh, I had a really like, love-hate relationship with him at one stage. We were best of friends now, me and Mikey, but back then I hated his guts. <laughs> uh, he, he won't mind me saying that. And he was representing some of the cast of Return of the Living Dead. And he was a pain in the ass, to be honest. He was, you know, he, he always wanted, kind of, it was always an angle with Mikey. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was always, you know, he was protective over the cast. So he always thought they were being kind of shafted and whatnot. So you get to be really careful with Mikey to get, get to him. So I wrote the, we wrote the book and then uh, Tommy Hudson, who worked closely with Mikey, and Tommy Hudson, again, amazing producer. He, you know, I think he revolutionized documentaries. I genuinely think he did with regards to Never Sleep Again and Crystal Lake Memories and uh, the other Jason documentary that he did. Uh, he approached me and basically said, you know, you've rewritten the um, the book, you and Mike, you and Christian. So do you want to write the narrative structure? And I'm thinking, shit, how do you do that? I've no idea how to do it. I, I kind of convinced Christian. So listen, Christian, it's going to be easy because we know what we're talking about. We've got a structure. Leave it with me and let me do this part. And obviously, you know, and you help me with the structure when it comes in, when it comes in. And what happened was they basically presented us with these transcribes of every single interview they had, they'd shot. And it was our job to kind of construct those uh, transcribes into a narrative format. And that was really kind of a massive kind of education for me because that's what really taught me with regards to Hellraiser, which kind of came later, but I don't use that formula anymore, but I did then. And it, by doing that, kind of, you know, kind of really supported our kind of first process in making documentaries. So, yes, yeah, so that's what it was really. Like, you know, Tommy tr- Tommy and Mikey, fair play to Mikey, trusted me to, to basically take on that role of writing it. I think I got really friendly with the cast by then as well. You know, I was friend, obviously, I was very close to Dom. I'm extremely close to Don, really close to Beverly. I've got friendly with Tom Matthews and Brian Peck and people like Mike Miguel. Not so much Jewel. <laughs> she doesn't like me anyway. <laughs> it's another story. Uh, but yeah, so we kind of, um, and Linnea, of course, you know, got friendly with her. And also I got, I got very friendly with that, uh, Dan O'Bannon's uh, widow, um, Diane O'Bannon. Unfortunately, when we were writing the book, Dan passed away. Uh, he, he he agreed to be interviewed. Then he couldn't be interviewed. And obviously, we didn't know at the time he was really ill. Obviously, he had Crohn's disease, and he was and he was dying of that, unfortunately. And then, but he gave us his blessing for that book. And obviously, when he passed away, you know, Diane was amazing. She really supported us as well. So that was it, really. Kind of, they got us on board because we kind of we were the go-to guys. By back then, and Return of Living Dead, we kind of knew the formula, and the book had been successful and was quite popular. When you were doing the working on the book, and then reading the sort of the transcribes of the interviews. One of the things about this documentary, and I've seen it before, and for people that want to find it, it's on the Arrow release of... Shout Factory. It's on the Shout Factory release. Uh, uh, and in the UK, it's on the second site. So second site in the UK and Shout Factory in, in the US. Okay. One of the things that really struck me about this documentary, and I love... Never Sleep Again, Crystal Lake Memories. Yeah. I have a friend, a writer-director in Los Angeles. His name is Jim Hemphill. And Tommy Hudson actually produced his movie, Trouble with the Truth. And so there's a little, oh, really? little bit of connection yeah. there. And um, yeah. But one of the things that really struck me more so even than, than Tommy's documentaries was the stories that were being told about the production of Return of the Living Dead. And it wasn't just everybody got along and everybody was happy yeah. and everybody. When did that sort of come on your radar that this was more and more, I don't want to use the word a troubled production, but a different production uh, that was when we started the book i mean it was very difficult at first to be honest because we knew that dan abandon was a character 
and he was temperamental and it was his first obviously directing gig a return of living dead um obviously he was a writer and he wrote alien and you know and total recall and stuff like that which obviously came after return of living dead but he was a kind of a troubled person with regards to his emotions and dan would admit to that as well you know he, he would blow hot and cold and he'd have tantrums and some people would be great to younger cast he was horrible too um but also his issues like with, with bill munns as well bill munns was the guy who did the original effects now when we approached bill he was like, no, I'm not talking about this. There's no way. And I was like, listen, it's your opportunity to give your story across. You know, you've been battered in Fangoria magazines and whatnot when people have been talking about the effect. You know, to tell us what went wrong. And a lot of it was down to Dan, really. And like down to Dan's kind of pressure he was putting on uh, on Bill. And I think they just didn't get on. Like, that relationship then just suffered. So from day one, we kind of knew it was turbulent. And it was, that made an interesting story. But the weird thing is, we just we work on Robocop at the moment just finishing that up and um the same kind of goes with paul Verhoeven a little bit he he was a kind of a, a character and we kind of said from day one on that project that we wouldn't shy away from that because what we're not trying to do is kind of you know do some expose on some you know kind of horrible director we're trying to say that in even with all the madness and return of him dead of course being the same example all the stress all the madness all the tantrums all all the arguments something amazing happened and i think that's return of him dead for me it's kind of when you look at the history a bit and what happened and how it was produced, it was an absolute nightmare. It was a war zone to be on that set. But look what came from that. So you know, I think that's what people have warmed to Dan since. And I, one thing that amazed me, and I think why More Brains uh, stands out, is that the cast love each other. You know, they're, they're very close to this day. And that's unusual, really, where, you know, Don and Beverly and were like, you know, two peas in the pod, really. She, you know, he was like a... I say a father figure to her, but like an uncle figure to her. And she was very close visiting more time, and obviously, you know, with, with Clue and Jimmy Karen as well. So it was really a weird situation where everybody became close because of the, the kind of war, the post-traumatic stress syndrome, probably, I'm making that film. Question for you, just sort of, uh, maybe sort of a side question. That's fine. For, especially for the listeners here. What was Romero's take on Return of the Living Dead? Because I know that, you know, after Night of the Living Dead, you got Russo goes one direction, Romero goes the other. But yeah. ultimately, what, what was Romero's take on that movie? It's really weird because you don't get the definitive answer. We tried to approach Romero um, through his agent at the time uh, for Return of the Dead book. So I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to get his view on it. And it was a blanket, no, we're not interested. And, you know, you've heard things over the years where apparently he liked it, you know, and then apparently he didn't. I mean, there's, I know there's a, some video footage of him from kind of, I, did, he, I think he was presenting a kind of like a, you know, like um, a Peter Vincent kind of thing, you know, a horror time channel thing. And he said, you know, zombies shouldn't run. And he was quite clear on that. And that's a dig on Return of the Living Dead, really, you know, because zombies ran into Return of the Living Dead. So it's really hard, really, to work, see what, you know, what his perception was. I mean, it, it destroyed uh, David Dead at the box office, you know, and I, I love David Dead. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. But at the time, you know, Return of the Living Dead came out at the same time Return of the Living Dead did, sorry. And it destroyed it box office-wise. So I'm sure he wasn't happy about that either. And again, you know, you think about Return of the Living Dead and Russo, it's not the same film. It's not what Russo wrote at all. It isn't. I mean, Russo did a great job on the book. He, he did a novelization of the movie uh, after the movie came out. But if you read the original script and read the original not, Return of the Dead book, it is nothing like what we've, what we've got. It, it is basically a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead with, you know, the, the same kind of rules, you know, shoot him in the head, you know, and the, the eat flesh. So uh, it's kind of, it's, I think, you know, I hope deep down he enjoyed it because it's an enjoyable film. It really is. You know, it didn't damage his reputation in any way, I don't think. And it didn't damage his films, you know, and now... 
David, there's a masterpiece, and it's seen as that as a cult film. Yeah. So it's a difficult one. We never got a definitive answer for it. It's, it's only kind of rumor where you get on that one. That documentary comes out, and just tell me, at some point, you, you want to make one of these films yourself. I mean, you, you wrote yeah. the narrative for the Return of the Living Dead documentary, which I think is exceptionally good, and I urge everyone to watch it. Uh, yeah, it's very, y- very You've decided, now you've decided you want to do your own. And tell me yeah. tell me why, or tell me the decision to go with the movie you went with, and then what's yeah. literally the first step that Gary Smart has to make when he decides <laughs> to make his first documentary? Okay, we so we did a screen of uh, Return of the Living Dead with Dom. And that, again, that, so that was very successful. And that was of a little company uh, called Back to the Theatre, in, in a little company in, in Birmingham, the UK, who were doing screenings. Again, Night of the Dead, one I went to, had two people in the audience. It was not successful. We sold out and Return of the Living Dead. And in a way, it's kind of like, because it was such a relaxed kind of company and people, it, was, it wasn't a company per se. It was kind of just people getting together, you know, putting screens on. It, I kind of ended up kind of taking over it a little bit in a really weird way. Um, it ended nastily, that, that relationship did, which I'll go into in a minute. But uh, I ended up taking over a little bit and I said, you know, let's try and do a, a, another kind of cult film. I said, but actually, let's try and do a film which is made in the UK where we know the cast and crew are going to be here, the majority of the cast and crew. And I love Hellraiser. I actually prefer Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. You know, it's one of my favourite films next to Return of the Living Dead. And uh, I mean, I've been a massive fan of Kenneth Cranham, for, you know, for, since again, since I was a kid. Him and Don and Mark McDowell and Robert England are up there for me as my kind of like favourites. So I... Um, so, you know, I just said one day, we, we went for a drink after the screening. I said, well, let's just try to do a screen of this. And that happened. And we got Don, uh, Don Co. We got Kenneth Cranham, uh, who played Dr. Chenard. We got Jeff Portis, who was the, basically the guy who created Pinhead, you know, his makeup guy and created Chenard as well. We got uh, um, Nicholas Vince, the chatterer, and Simon Bamford, who played the Butterball Center boy. And we invited him down to Birmingham. We did a screening, very successful. And then we went for a drink, and <laughs> another drink as you do, after... I remember, I remember it vividly. We were sitting around, and it was like July time, I think it was. So it was quite sunny out, and it was in this bar, which had a kind of garden kind of area. And we are just chatting amongst ourselves. And I said, wouldn't it be great just to do a documentary of our own? And then someone went, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we, we, I, I've written one before. I know how the structure is. We won't do anything big. We'll just do, we'll just do RAs 1 and 2. We'll only interview the people who are in the U.K., just a few interviews. It won't cost us anything. We've got a, we've got a nice Canon camera, you know. We've got some equipment. People in that group were filmmakers, actually. You know, Ken, uh, Kevin McDonough was a filmmaker. Uh, he had made a couple of movies in the UK independently. So he knew, obviously, about filmmaking. I didn't have a clue. And basically, it was like, let, let's just do that. And it was... Uh, Simon Bamford was doing a convention in Birmingham at the NEC, which is a big convention centre, one of the biggest in Europe. And um, I got in touch with him. I said, do you mind being, you know, come to the hotel after being interviewed? No problem. He, he came to the hotel, had a few glasses of wine, got pissed, and we interviewed him. And um, it kind of it just snowballed from there. It wasn't meant to be what it was. And I've got lots of regrets about Leviathan, to be honest. It, there's, even though it's been well-received, and I'll go into why I've got regrets about that, but it kind of just went massive. It, you know, it ended up being next week we had two people, and the week after we had five people in the interviews. Every weekend for about... A year we're interviewing people in the uk and then we ended up going into the states and doing a kickstarter and that's how it happened it was one of those things it wasn't meant to be as big as it was but because we started getting interesting stories and actually it was a very british film how raised yet it's funded by american money but it's a british production crew and majority british cast obviously apart from andy robinson in the first film 
and Ashley Lawrence. It just snowballed and it, it wasn't meant to be uh, the way it was, you know. And that was my kind of first kind of venture into filmmaking on my own, really, as, as a producer. Not having a clue what I was doing, but my business partner, Adam, and Chris, uh, Adam's very good at kind of organising stuff, So, and I'm good at logistical stuff as well. So that's what we kind of came into our kind of like, you know, kind of fr- fruition there. We kind of managed to organise schedules and people and money and, and scrape money together and trains and the hotel. We got a free hotel room, all that kind of stuff. And it kind of just evolved and got bigger and bigger. <laughs> what are you doing for a day job when you're doing all of this? Because you said, you know, you're doing this on the weekends. Are you still just yeah. in education? I mean, you- education. Yeah, yeah. So I was still managing schools, uh, a school. Uh, at the time, I've been there. I'd been there for eighteen years. So yes, I was. A, and it, we called ourselves Court Screenings UK Limited and Dead Man's Productions. But one guy said to us once, we should call ourselves Half Term Productions because in the UK the holidays when the school are called half terms. I'm not sure what they call in the states because we, everything we did was in the half term, basically. You know, and even even to this day, we you know we're shooting the ditties, we're shooting them in half terms, we're shooting you know documentaries over the summer because obviously the schools break down for the summer. So yes, it was kind of. It, it, it came alive, really, did, where, you know, you'd be working all week and then on a Friday you'll be going, setting up, uh, you know, an, a, an area of a hotel for a, a cast member to arrive on a Saturday morning and all Saturday and Sunday you were filming. And I think, because we've been doing it now for about 11 years, you got used to it now. It's, this lockdown, I know it's a different subject. It's, you know, that's the biggest thing I've kind of lost, really, in the lockdown, is that kind of, like, buzz where you're constantly working, you're constantly doing it. So if you're coming home, working on some project, weekends you work on something, it's kind of bit, It's kind of weird now to have a kind of a little bit of kind of, you know, me time, which is unusual. So, yes, it was like, it was great balancing, and I had a really good boss as well who allowed us to, you know, I remember going to shoot Doug Bradley one day in London, and she let me have a day off. And I work in education, that's not... not necessarily the norm but she was great you know our kind of principal and she allowed us to have days off here and there to do stuff so you know she was encouraging of us as well let me ask you this gary when you're when you're working on leviathan the the hellraiser documentary and you, you're at school I mean, <laughs> is this project consuming your thoughts every day I mean, are you able to focus on the job at hand? Because I know for me, like doing this podcast for eight years and I've got guests coming on, like, you know, I, I knew you were coming on. So I'm, I'm trying to get as much research in as possible and watch as much as I yeah. can. And I have a day job and um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be actually, you know, able to leave the house to go to work every once in, you know, so, yeah. but I find myself consumed by, you know, this podcast. So I can't imagine. You know, when you're working on a project of that scale, is it consuming your thoughts on a daily basis, at least back then when you're first getting into it? You know what? It, it, it could do, and but it couldn't because, it, again, the environment I was working at the time was a very, very deprived school in a deprived area. Okay. Lots of lots of stuff regards to kind of like you know internal politics going on there. Lots, I mean, lots of stuff. I, mean, I could write a documentary on that school alone, really. What was going on there regards to issues. So you couldn't really, you know, and, and working in a school. And again, I'm not sure what it's like in, in the states, but in the UK, the days go so fast because it, it's something completely different. This was not a school which was like you know affluent. It wasn't a school which had you know kids who really wanted to be there and parents wanted the kids to be there it was a rough inner city school really an amazing place to work an amazing community but you didn't have time to be consumed by anything else other than the school so that became difficult because when you got home suddenly you was on to Hellraiser then in your head I mean there's never a day went by I remember thinking that one day I remember waking up the one day thinking for the last like two years I've not thought anything but Hellraiser every day it's always been in my head and it'd be great to not think about it again for a while but near near the end of my my time there because I, I left there about a year ago 
18 months ago. It probably did consume a little bit more, I'll be honest, it did, because, you know, my colleague, Neil, um, who writes ridiculous with me, he also works in education as well, and he works at the same school as me. So, he, you know, when we were doing break duties and lunch duties, supervising the kids, we were talking about our next project, and we were talking, and the kids were fighting in the corner we would carry on chatting obviously neil obviously a professional i wasn't so it was kind of um yeah i mean it, it it's that balancing that really and prioritizing as well because not only are you doing two jobs you've also got a life as well you know you've also got bills to pay you've also got responsibilities and elsewhere um so it, as you said you know you, you balance it sometimes it becomes bad other times it's okay to manage but yeah i think it was okay I never got in trouble for it. I never right. got in trouble from the boss. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I got away with it. <laughs> I think it's incredible that, and we're going to get into the dark ditties here in just a little bit. And but, fine, but man. the idea that you were working, you were you were still at the school while you were working on that, and I'm I was so impressed by you know the sh- the show I watched today. So we'll, we'll we'll circle back to that in just a moment. So with Leviathan, for the listeners who haven't seen it, this has a uh, quite the running time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's my big dis- disappointment of Leviathan. We 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 were we were, we were a bit cocky to be honest. We were, you know, we. It was difficult for us. We'd shot 40, 50 interviews, and we were stupid as well because what we did, we when we interviewed people, we were interviewing them for two and a half hours, and actually we had two and a half hours of material on each person times by 50, so talking over 100-plus hours of, of, of raw footage, and we were asking just the wrong questions, really. And the problem what happens in interviews is, uh, especially when people made films years ago, is that stories they tell aren't their stories it's stories they've heard on panels when they've been q a's and and you know and you start asking people the, the wrong kind of questions really and it's kind of you end up getting loads of information and it becomes a bit laborious to go through what we've done now just fast forward is we're very careful now we you know if you worked on a special effect and you worked on the one special effect we talked about that one special effect only you know your work on that what you did and that's it we asked you the question at the end, anything else you want to add? Because sometimes people have other stories. But we were asking like stupid, you know, what was it like to Andrew Robinson? What do you think about this casting decision? Describe this character to me. Why would, you know, Simon Bamford give a shit, you know, about the character of, of Larry, really? You know, and so what we did, we did the narrative structure. We just put it all in and we kind of ended up, you know, we did cut a lot, obviously. We had to with over 100 hours of footage. But it ended up being six hours and we were kind of cocky about that because we thought what we'll do is we'll have this really big documentary because, you know, Never Sleep Again is like, you know, seven hours long or five hours long, something like it was. We're going to be just as big as them. Yeah, but they had quality. They had, they had six films to, or seven films to go for. We've got, we've got two, really. And it kind of... It was my fault because I wanted it big and wanted, you know, this big kind of mammoth Leviathan kind of project. And it ended up being, I think it was like six hours from like it was with nine hours of bonus features. The, the weirdest thing is, is that nobody ever complained about that. When, you know, the reviews, we never got anything negative. We were, And the things were repetitive, you know. We had people talking about Clive Barker, you know, and Clive Barker's work. Saying a gene, 15 different people saying the same thing about how much of a genius he was. Do you need 15 people saying that, really? So it was really weird to trade for us because it, it, when it came out, it was extremely popular. It um, sold out. You know, it's going for silly money now. And you go on eBay, it's like 150 quid, 200 quid just for the DVD. And it was kind of like, yeah, you know, but we kind of thought that's not what we should be doing as filmmakers. So what me and Chris did then, Arrow approached us and we kind of did a re-edit of it then. So part one now is an hour and a half on the first film. Part two is an hour and 45 minutes. And there are edits, you know, that's the producer's edits. And we, uh, you know, going back about the politics, what happened with that project is that we fell out with the director of it, um, Kev McDonough. And, um, you know, we 
took it back on. Yeah, we took the project back ourselves, and it was our company, our project. He was hired, and we kind of did the producers cut really. So it was mammoth big. People like it, but I I, I regret it. You know, I, I just think it's there's a story there which could have been executed a lot better. You know, if I'm going to be honest. Where is that available right now? If somebody listening wants to check that out. You can watch Leviathan, the producers cut on the Arrow release. It's on so many releases. It's on the Arrow release, it's on the Italian, the Japanese, it's on the French, the German releases. The Germans released it as a separate documentary on the Blu-ray. They never told us they were going to do that, but they did. Uh, it was on Shudder. Uh, one and two uh, we licensed Shudder um, I think the license just, has just come up recently I think number two might still be on there at the moment if you've got Shudder uh, that's UK and, and uh, America um, so yeah it's it's out there uh, if you want to buy the original Blu-ray it's going to cost you an arm and <laughs> leg because people there's some scalpers out there who will especially for the kind of limited edition one with the kind of slip sleeve that's like 200, 300 quid on and people are paying it. Which is, we aren't seeing any of that, but people are paying it for it. Yeah, so it's out there, definitely. You know, one day I think we'll, we'll probably we will revisit it. We'll put it on Blu-ray ourselves one day, uh, and maybe kind of put some extra stuff in there. And uh, but we just got one of those things where we've got too much on at the moment. You know, maybe you know in, in 2027 for the 40th anniversary we might revisit it then. Maybe. Can I ask? And if if this question is a, a no-go, you can just certainly tell me. No, um, that's fine, uh, Just just your brief thoughts on the subsequent sequels that were that came out in the Hellraiser films. See, I, I love Hellraiser 2. It's my favourite. Yeah. I just love Ken Cranham. He's my, my favourite actor, Ken Cranham. I think he did an amazing job as Chenard. And, you know, I think it's, just, it's, it's, it's a different film to the first one. The film, first one was very dark and it's very kind of like, it's this love story, really, the first one is. And it's very Macbeth, you know, Shakespearean. Macbeth's wrong word, wrong, wrong analogy. Shakespearean, sorry. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, you know, it's claustrophobic where the first one opens up into hell and whatnot and it's amazing the first one was a kid I loved the third film you know as a kid I watch it now and I'm not too keen on it I think it was Americanized and that's not being disrespectful to Americans but when you when you see the first one it's very British it's a very kind of see the British kind of horror and American horror is very different you know it's British horror is always very raw and dirty where American horror is you know there's money spent on American horror you know there's a, there's a budget and you see it and you know and it, it's glossy and it's and it's comic-y and it's you know it, it's, it's got a big appeal to it as well but that's not what Hellraiser is about Hellraiser was never about showing up and, and you know it was never about big budgets and you know when you watch the first one you got CD head and camera head the decisions which were made which were wrong because no one would have known CDs would be out of fashion within a couple of years <laughs> but you know it's kind of, it really dates that film now it does and camera head and it's not what a Cenobite should be the fourth film is really great I love the fourth film I think it's really interesting Bloodline I think the, the different timelines is great the space bit not so much but I think the bit obviously when you know when you learn about the Lamont configuration being created in the um, 17th century I think it was or 18th century and then you see modern day and the rest of them were not very good films unfortunately you know they weren't Hellraiser films you know they were other horror films and Pinhead, Pinhead was thrown into them by Dimension Films keep the rights and I think it wasn't about the passion of filmmaking sorry the passion of Hellraiser the mythology it was about making films making money or retaining rights you know I know Gary Tunnicliffe's done you know done work on the last two which are Hellraiser films you know they're written as Hellraiser films but Bradley's not in there Doug Bradley um, hopefully this new TV series which has been mentioned again and again and again hopefully Bradley will be in that I think you can't redo Pinhead about Bradley you can't do Freddy Krueger about Robert England not when they're still alive you know if you know if unfortunately he's passed away you've got to do it, redo it then but you know get new, somebody else new but when they're still here and they're still active and still fit enough to do it why not have a minute so 
yeah, the rest from from four on five onwards. I'm not interested, really. Interesting. And you mentioned the TV show, and we're, we're in such a world now where episodic television is, is never. There's never been a better time to to put things no. in episodic television. Yeah. Would you agree? I've, yeah, I've just been watching The Stand. You know, um, yeah. I, I loved The Stand as a kid. Again, you know, I've watched it recently, and uh, it's not as great as you remember it. You know, and I actually loved the first part of The Stand, where it's actually the virus is spreading, people are dying, all especially. And Steve Johnson's effects were amazing in that first first series back in the nineties. The new series, you know, it's 10, 10 episodes. I think it is. I watched eight, and it's really good. It's like it's just you know, there's so much more in it, and it's really weird. It's like it doesn't feel like any more in it. Actually, it doesn't. I'm contradicting myself now because I'm watching it going, I remember, I remember that from the book, I remember that from the series. And I'm thinking, how did it do the first one in like four episodes, an hour each, four episodes? And this is like already eight, eight hours already we've seen. We've got another two to go. But I think, yeah, I think it's perfect opportunity. I think TV now is amazing, obviously, um, as a kind of like an outlet for horror. And, t- and, and genre-specific shows, you know, you look at Hannibal, you look at Walking Dead, you look at, you know, American Horror Story. It's, you know, there's a servant on, uh, on Apple at the moment, which is really good. It's, it's, a great, it's a great outlet, I think, for horror, particularly, I think, um, um, TV is. And I think Horror Age will be brilliant because you can tell a story there. It doesn't have to just be about, you know, Larry and Julia. Pin's got to be at the centre of it, but it's about other people find that box and different, if they did it in different time zones as well, you know, or different areas. You know, you know, different locations, and you know, because Pinhead obviously is from hell. He can go anywhere, can't he? Really? So I think it's a, it'd be, if they did it, handle it right, it'd be amazing. I hope we don't just do some story where it's fifteen episodes of just one person's story following a box. You can't, you can't milk it for that long. It's got to be an anthology series. I think it's got to be with the Cenobites as the central characters. Yeah, no, I think that's brilliant. No, good, good. Let's hope. Yeah, that's, <laughs> um, so, Gary, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was getting ready to talk to you was I said, I'm not going to be able to have enough time to talk about everything that you've done, but there's some key things that I really... Not all the time in the world. Will, but I, I'm definitely going to be inviting you back on. So, there's a few other things. Yeah. That I don't want you to feel like yeah. I'm just glossing over your career, but... We, no, 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 no yeah. it's fine. There's lots, lots in there. <laughs> but we have to talk about a show that's available on Amazon right now, Dark Ditties. And, and I'm going to urge the listeners right now, if you have Amazon Prime, I want you to just pause this recording right now. <laughs> and and watch them watch them the dark ditties i was introduced to it last night and this morning and there's lots to talk about gary so let's just talk about where's the inspiration for this project and how do you get started on it okay so i've been going to lots of conventions lots of screenings because we, we've invited a lot of screenings in the uk like fright fest is a big one and grim fest basically to sell our documentaries really and sell our kind of our, our merchandise our books who obviously we did books as well obviously and whatnot um, and I was sitting there thinking all the time, you know, we're sitting behind this table selling our DVDs and books and people are queuing up to go and watch these independent films and there's red carpets and there's always filmmakers. And I think we could do that quite easily. You know, we've got enough connections now. And, and my film school kind of, of edu- education was not going to an actual building and learning film. My film school was doing these documentaries. It was talking to the likes of Chris Figg. The producer of Hellraiser. It was talking to Tom Holland, the producer, the, the writer and director of Fright Night. It was talking to Verhoeven. It was talking to, you know, people like Paul Maslansky of Police Academy. So it was, I, I learned so much from these people about the filmmaking process. I felt confident enough to do something ourselves. And one thing that Chris Figg said, the producer of Hellraiser, was the reason why they did Hellraiser really was because it was a few, few people in a house. Easy to do, cheap enough to do, 
one location really, and there were little bits and pieces in, in hospitals and whatnot. But it was cheap enough to do. And I said, I said to my my um, colleague Adam and Neil, uh, Adam originally, I said, to him, why don't we just write our own story about a house with some people in it, and the kind of old kind of the, the bullshit kind of you always get, you know. <laughs> People get people in there. They get trapped. They get killed off one by one. You know they're in there for one particular reason because I've been offered something. But actually, there's an ulterior motive. But let's put our own twist on ulterior motive. Let's do a homage to the, you know the Hammer horror films and the saws and that kind of stuff. But make it British. Make it very kind of like you know um, our own really. You know, and it's kind of we knew Kenneth Cranham, great. You know, he's a well-known actor. Play playing it. We knew Simon Bamford. We knew Barbie Wilde. We knew the special effects wizard Stuart Comran. So we had all these people already lined up, and um, I wrote this story called The Inheritance. It was only 15 minutes short, and it literally was about these people going to inheritance reading, and the person who, um, who's obviously who passed away uh, was their father or something like that, and each one of them was killed off by one by one because it was a sin, basically. And I think it was a sin, actually, at the time. They just got killed off one by one. And I went, let's do the Seven Deadly Sins, and then we evolved and evolved, and it became the offer then. I got Neil, Neil Morris involved in writing it, and it was one of those things where we wrote it and it ended up being 15 pages and up being 50 pages and of having seven lead characters um, and obviously then Ken's character, stuff like that. And then we found a location. And again, it's like, like the Ditty, like the documentaries, we kind of planned it. Let's go and do it our first time. Lots of problems when we filmed that, the offer. Lots of problems. It was an absolute nightmare. I think half of us went on there thinking this was going to be something really big and something successful. The other half went going, oh, it's a weekend away. We can shoot this in three days. Let's have a bit of a laugh when we're doing it. You know, it's not going to be anything important. So there was, a, it was, it was an issue there already. And it was kind of, but it ended up being something really special, really. You know, it was a lot of post-production work on the offer. And we kind of thought we've got something here with that, with that episode. And then we thought there's a story to tell and um, an anthology series to tell as well. So we decided to basically write a series about this kind of fictional kind of area in town where, each story is different, yet there is a slight narrative flow going through. There's one character who comes through, who's mentioned sporadically throughout them, appears in some of them. But like American Horror Story, the same actors play different characters. Yeah. But like American Horror Story, it's in different seasons. They play them in different episodes. So one episode, Bruce Jones is playing Michael Bishop, one character. Next episode, he's playing Mr. Wilshire. The next episode, he's playing one of the, the kind of poachers. Well, these characters can still cross over as well. So we've got one episode where Bruce plays three different characters in, who he's played before in one episode. So we kind of did that way, kind of quirky. And that's how it kind of evolved, really. We got really lucky with the cast as well, you know. Some of the cast members are quite well-known over here for, like, you know, kind of like that daytime soaps he used to be in, but they're quite really popular kind of in, in those kind of fields back in the day. So that's kind of, again, a long, short story about that, about how the ditties kind of evolved, really, and came about. Well, what was interesting because I reached out to you yesterday and I said, I'm, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch the watch the ditties. Uh, do, you, yeah. do you have any recommendations? And, and you gave me a couple of recommendations. And the first one I watched was Finders Keepers. Yeah. And when I finished it, I said to myself exactly what you just said. I said, no, there's a through line going through all of these shows. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to circle back to yeah. the beginning. And then I watched the offer and I yeah. was like, wait, didn't I see him in? So everything you're saying makes perfect yeah. sense. And just to put it out there, I really, what I've seen so far, I still got to watch the last episode, but what I've seen so far, I've really, really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. And, and I'm very I mean, curious. You, you've you got this idea. You 
you you make it, you film it. Where are you thinking about distribution? Where does distribution come uh, yeah. to this? Like, where does is this something you're just going to do at the con- you're going to show at the conventions? I mean, what was this your is, plan? Is, well, the plan was as you, as you, your plan always is is that it's going to be massive and popular. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're going to release something. It's going to be brilliant. You know, I go to all these conventions, uh, screens. It's going to be brilliant. You know, we're going to be on every single screening. We're gonna we're gonna have it, and that's the plan. It never happens that way. I found out, and again, I probably get shot down for this. Is that I found that in the UK, particularly, the festival circuit is very insular. It's very um, incestuous to a degree. Is that it's same people going to the same shows every year with their films, and and that's not saying obviously you know our film is too, you know brilliant. We should be in there, but at first, trying to get our stuff in there was a pain. It was a pain in the ass. And you think, you've got Kenneth Cranham. You know, he's well-known in the UK, Kenneth Cranham is. You've got Bruce Jones, who's well-known as an actor. You've got Stuart Conran doing the effect. And actually, I've been very good, you know, about being egotistical. Why aren't we get breaking through? And then we got told, you know, oh, because we're in between a TV episode and they're in between a film, they're only 45 minutes long. It should be, you know, they're not falling the right bracket. Towards the Witch Hour, which came out last year, is our fourth one. Number five will be out next month. Number four is an hour and a half. So that's been doing really well at festivals because it's an hour and a half. It's been dropping, even though it's an episode, it's going into the feature categories. But, you know, one thing I say about that, those is, you know, we're shooting the offer in three days, literally three days that was shot in. You know, uh, Finders Keepers was shot in five days. No one can believe that when we tell them because, you know, production value on those films, on those episodes, you, you, they don't look like they've been shot in five, in, in five days at all. You know, most people would shoot them in three or four weeks. The reason why we're shot in five days is we've got an amazing cast who know their lines and absorb the characters. We've got an amazing crew who will work silly hours because they all want the best for the project. You know, they'll be working, you know, we'll be starting at six in the morning, not finishing until two in the morning, you know, the, the crew themselves. And that's, you know, and I think everybody dedicated to it. So the idea was to get it into festivals. That's kind of evolved a little bit because lockdown has caused some problems where really lockdown has because you know we were talking to people about obviously extending the series into full production basically before lockdown well obviously now the uk has completely halted all of its production really unless you're ricky gervais or you know you've got a, a well-known brand you know you're a witcher something like that you ain't get, you're not going to get your your series made we're only doing dead certs at the moment our plan obviously hopefully is to and our pitch we've got a we've got a pitch ready you know we've uh, we've got a bible ready for the series it is a so far two seasons we've planned and 10 episodes per season, well, that's, that's the plan, with a narrative through line going through. And there will, there will be 45 to 50 minutes episodes each with 10 episodes. Um, that's, the, that's the plan for it. There's only so much we can do, I think, with the series at the moment. They go on Amazon Prime at the moment because the offer was sitting on a shelf for a year. We'd, we'd shown it at some festivals. We'd won a couple of awards for it. Then it just sits on a shelf, you know, metaphorically sits on a shelf and a hard drive. And then what do we do with it? Where does it go? And then... We found out with Amazon Prime, you can not upload your own stuff to it. So we uploaded the offer, but Wilshire was uploaded. So we, that's our kind of like formula now. We make them and upload them there, but not bring any money in because obviously, you know, it's peanuts you get off Amazon when you do upload your own stuff. But our work's getting out there and we're getting obviously known for that as well. So not only are we getting known for the documentaries, the books, we're also getting known for now, obviously, for narrative series as well. So hopefully it shows we can, we can do lots of different things in regards to production. So, yeah, that, that's kind of, again, the, the long, short story on that and, the you know, kind of our vision for it. So the offer, you're directing it. I just want to ask you what your experiences were like directing these actors. So, so I direct on the offer, we split the duties. So 
I directed the death scenes, basically, because he was the gore. So anything that was death related, I directed those. And Chris, you know, Chris directed, obviously, the rest of the narrative. It, I, I think we were friends with people. You know, we were friends with Ken by then. We were friends with Barbie, uh, Barbie Wilde and Simon Bamford and Nicholas Vince. We kind of got to know the new... We auditioned for the younger actors, got them in. It became of a family, really, it did. And I think it wasn't that difficult because... It, you had your vision, what you wanted. And as writers, we wrote it as well. So you knew what you wanted. We had a very good cast. So it kind of wasn't a major issue. It became an issue on Wilshire, really, dear, because on Wilshire, Chris became a producer and Chris worked on other stuff. So Chris took a back seat and became a producer. And me and Neil directed uh, Wilshire. And it wasn't a great experience. Not because, you know, anything other than I found it very difficult to try and manage logistically what was going on and producing and then being on the set. You know, and, and directing, and uh, it was a very hard episode, n- number two. Is anyway, I think I'd, when you asked me the other day about the episode, I said number two is dark and yeah. hard. <laughs> um, uh, but so I took a back seat from Ben. I enjoyed it. So now Adam directs them all. So Adam Evans directs, directed Finds Keepers, The Witch Town, and just directed Dad for us. Uh, because I think that, and both Neil and I agreed about that, we need to take a back seat. So we can go and talk to the actors on a different level to what Adam can. As, you know, Adam is very much directing, telling them, you stand there, you know, come and do this, redo that. Was we can go in and talk a little bit more about character to them then. And also, we can hide as well. When it, sh- when it hits the fan, we can go and hide somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so I enjoyed directing. I did enjoy it, but I, I enjoy producing. I, I really do. I think because I, I have a logistical kind of mind as well. Again, working education for so long, where you're organising school days and, you know, bloody fire drills and you're organising lockdowns, you know, and what kind of stuff, um, and health and safety and that kind of stuff in schools and budgets. It kind of it kind of translated really well into these projects. You, same kind of thing, just managing people really. So I, I enjoyed that more. You know, I enjoyed the directing, but I found it not as gratifying as obviously as the producing. Really, when I was watching Finders Keepers, I, I took a took a couple notes and I and I wrote down. I wonder. This is what I literally wrote. I wonder if Gary ever wants to explore the idea of writing a organized crime story because there was a there was just some like, yeah. just a completely different project all this but I said I wonder if Gary's interested in that because there was a I, I caught a couple of references to a few different things in there and I said I wonder if he's just yeah. interested in doing a story like that so I'll just ask you again this is just a complete sidebar question any thoughts on doing that in the future someday yes yeah, we're because what we try to do with is is we try to make each episode kind of like again it's in the same world but have not just be about horror so finest keepers the, the offer is about kind of like people and people's kind of personalities and how when it hits the fan how people turn each other it's a psychological thing i think the offer is but there's horror and gore in it you know there's chainsaws and people being chopped up wilshire is very much about you know kind of trauma really i think it is and and abuse really again the comedy is very subtle in in (laughs) wilshire but it's about a person's life who's been destroyed by abuse the witch the finest keepers is about is a, is a crime thriller really it's about gangsters you know and, but in that in our world where there's gore people's head gets blown up and there's still an underlining theme so funny enough in episode six which we're writing now which is our independent series of the six episodes of the independent series is we need to finish it basically if we you know because obviously we're independently financing ourselves if obviously we get obviously a production deal dispute a deal it'll be 10 episodes but for ourselves i mean it's current one it's six so number six actually is it bookended number six is so the beginning and end are, are slightly different but the middle is an organized crime <laughs> it literally is about benoit who's a character from episode one kenneth Cranham. it's about him when he's like in his 30s why he became who he did but it, there's like gangster bosses and that kind of stuff in there now the problem with the uk is we're notoriously bad 
at make we're not bad at making, but notoriously known for making shit gangster movies. <laughs> It's like you go into our supermarkets and there's 20 new gangster movies on the shelf every single. We call you straight to DVD. Obviously, you, know, you do that, obviously, in the States as well. But, and that's what I never wanted. I never wanted for Ditties to go and end up on DVD. We, we got offered a DVD sale last year on my Ditties. And I said no, because I didn't want to end, end up in supermarket for four quid on a shelf. And that's not being like an egotistical thing. It's not what it should be. It's meant to be a series. And it's difficult over here. When you mention gangsters here, and we know, because he got the craze and that kind of stuff, the Cray twins and that kind of stuff. Wow, in the sixties, gangsters. But you mentioned gangsters, people think, "Oh, that shit again." You know, <laughs> or you're making a gangster film. So we try to be clever with finding keepers with it, yeah. and then we're trying to be clever again with with um, with stains. Episode six is called. Uh, but yeah, there is a gangster element. To it. I, I, you know, I've been brought up on true crime, you know, as well as horror. My sister's a massive kind of, like, you know. She'd rather, if you ask her to pick three people to go on a dinner date with, she'll pick Dharma, Bundy, and Ramirez. She'd be picking, you know what I mean? Or Jack the Ripper. <laughs> so we've been brought upon that. So kind of crime is, you know, and, and, and the reason behind crime and gangsters and the craze in particular over here, you know, the 60s gangland, you know, is a big part of our culture in the UK. So yeah, yeah. To answer the question again very shortly, yeah, I, um, I'm interested in doing it. And I think we're going to step back into that world a little bit with episode six. I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. Can we talk about the the RoboCop documentary? Because yeah, we, of course, yeah. we're, we're looking at we're looking at uh, leading up to this. It's all very much in the horror genre. We've, yeah, we did Friday Night, yeah, Friday well, Night, and uh, yeah. Hellraiser, and all, and even even Diddy's has got the you know, like I said, the horror the yeah, horror yeah. elements to it. So, where does RoboCop yeah. come into the into the into the picture? Which, okay, I, so Gary, before you answer that, on. I want to say. One of my all-time favorite movies. Really? Abs- okay. Absolutely love it. Know the movie inside and out. I've seen it 30 wow. times. Wait to see the documentary. You'll be blown away. I, I, well, you know, I, I put my money on that. I can't wait. Um, I decided to do... I mean, I was, I was thrown into Return of Living Dick, obviously, because I was asked to do it. I decided to do Hellraiser. I decided to do Fright Night. And Chris wanted to do Robocop. Desperately, Chris is you know. Whereas I'm big on Return of the Dead, Chris is like a, a complete aficionado for uh, Chris Griffiths uh, for Robocop. He absolutely adores it. It's his favourite film. He adores the movie, and he wanted to do it. And it was kind of like, wasn't we in our genre a little bit? It wasn't you know because obviously we were doing horror. And I was kind of just saying, no, it is horror to a degree, Chris, because it's about somebody being destroyed. It's about someone's life being destroyed. That's that's the horror of of that you know. And the same reason why people argue. That people say that Silence Lambs isn't a horror. It is a horror. It's about people, what people do to each other. It's horror. It doesn't have to be Freddy Krueger with a glove. It doesn't have to be zombies eating people to be horror. So I think, you know, Robocop can be classed as horror anyway. But anyway, uh, and uh, there was, a, I won't mention a guy's name, but the, uh, a chap, a British guy, released a book on, on Robocop. Quite a popular book, The Definitive History. Can't see me doing my fingers then, came a quotation. <laughs> uh, he, he released Definitive History and he, um, yeah, I said to Chris, reach out to him, have a chat, you know, say, you know, how easy it was to get the cast of Cream Bowl, blah, 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 blah. We've subsequently found out that most of his interviews were archival interviews anyway, but that's a different story. So Chris approached him, and the first thing the guy said was, don't even try to do it. You'll never be allowed to do it. You shouldn't do it. My book's the definitive. That is the end of. So Chris came back going, oh, we can't do it, because he's already done a book, and he's basically told us so we won't be able to do it. And I went, fuck him, we're doing it. And Chris and I said, no, we're, fuck it. we're doing it. We're doing it. You know, you want to do it, let's do it. And we were in LA literally about two weeks after the shooting Friday night. And we kind of talked um, about obviously our next project. And I said, you've got to be Robocop. Oh, I'm not too sure. And Chris had become friends with Ed Newmeyer on Facebook, as you do. You know, you make yeah. friends with people. You don't really know them, but you make friends with them. 
And I went, you know what, Chris, message Ed now. Say we're in LA and let's go for a meal with him. Oh, no, no, no. I said, just do it, Chris. Just fucking message him. What's he going to say, yes or no? He's not, you know, he's not going to kill us, is it? So Chris messaged him and said, oh, well, you know, big fans, blah, blah, blah. We're in LA shooting Fright Night documentary. We'd love to take you out for a meal, have a chat with you about, you know, your work. Not mentioning Robocop, it's about your work. Bing. Yeah. Email back, message back. Yeah. Meet you tonight, seven o'clock at some Mexican restaurant. Uh, okay. He paid, thank God. Uh, <laughs> we got there and, you know, we didn't at all just try and talk about Robocop with him. You know, we were talking about Starship Troop. I mean, Adam, being Adam, he's very dry, you know, kind of like, he's no, you know, not no filter. He doesn't, he doesn't suck up to anybody. He's not that kind of person. And, you know, Adam's sitting there going, oh, I like Starship Troopers one, but the third one's shit. And then Ed Newmar goes, I directed that. And I was like, oh, did you? You know, he didn't care. I think Ed Ed kind of liked the idea that he just didn't give a shit. And we were chatting away. And Ed went to us, you know what you should do? You should do a documentary on Robocop. We're like, what? You should do a documentary. You should, you know, I think you should. I think, you know, you're the right guys for it. I will help you as much as I can. And we thought, we're a bit concerned, obviously, about rights issues. And he went, why is independent? You've got, you've got my support as much as you can. He works for Sony, you know, and, you get everybody else on board, you know, you've got justification to do it. And again, the snowballs from there, you know, we got everybody on board apart from Weller. That's another story. Oh. Um, and, you know, we got Verhoeven, we got Ronnie Cox, we got Kurtwood Smith, we got, you know, Nancy Allen, we got Michael M- M- uh, Minor, we got uh, obviously Ed Newmar on board, John Davison, the producer, I mean, everybody you can think of. And that just went big, 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 roll, roll, rolled. And we ended up then interviewing over 100 people for that, right from Robocop 1, 2, 3, and the TV series, and the comic book series as well, uh, Lee Sullivan, who was the uh, one of the, the artists on that. So that project, again, like Leviathan, it kind of it snowballed, became massive, and it's taken five years to make, really. And it's now, we're, and no one believes it, because obviously we've been saying every year it's coming out, we are literally at the final stages. We've got we've got a producer on board now, who just released "Cleaning Up the Town," the Ghostbusters documentary. Uh, he's on board. We've got obviously contracts in place. We've got all the legal kind of stuff sorted. We're literally on the final kind of cusp of Robocop, and you know we've released footage online before to show how amazing it is. And what difference with Robocop is? It's it's a documentary you've never seen before in the sense that it is not a traditional documentary. It's not just how the film was made, how the casting was done, how the special effects was done, the legs. This is a scene-by-scene dissection from oh, the people wow. who made the movie. I mean, literally, it's four hours long at the moment. We, we are getting down into a 100-minute commercial. We've got two versions. that We've got actually three versions, technically. Version one is the four-hour-long version, which would be the Blu-ray edition. And the extras will be Robocop 2 and 3 in the TV series. So there's, there's a documentary. I mean, I think the documentary on... Number two is two hours long. Chris is edited and three is an hour and a half. And then TV series, probably an hour. And then we've got a commercial cut being made, obviously, for screenings and for, hopefully, um, networks. And that's going to be 100 minutes. 100 minutes of two hours, that's going to be. And we're on the, literally the final stages of that. Um, so it's just, it's just been amazing, really, has. It's just an uh, amazing, stressful journey. Yeah. The whole Weller situation has been stressful as hell. And it's just kind of evolved and evolved. And we're finding, you know, we've got a lot of abuse from people because when's it coming out and, you know, and whatnot. But it's finally, it's finally there now. Same well, as Pennywise as well. 
Uh, yes, I was going to say, well, yeah, I wanted to touch on that in just a second, but I, and I'm asking this question and I'm definitely not asking for myself, but if listeners want to buy the, I'm saying that very sarcastically, <laughs> very facetiously, if, if I wanted to get a Blu-ray of this movie, how do I do it? <laughs> so for Robocop, it's going to be, it's going to be distributed properly. So uh, in a sense that, you know, uh, Brewster and Leviathan was independently produced by us. You know, we were, we were very lucky. We under the radar with those films. Funny enough with Brewster, we got an email from Sony. We thought, oh, shit, they're going to sue our asses off here. And they licensed it off us for their for, for their um, anniversary edition Blu-ray. So we kind of got the full kind of like um, seal of approval on, on Friday night. Now it's on their own edition, uh, the Sony release. But this is now, obviously, it's gone through legal now, Robocop has, and Pennywise, and Icon, and Police Academy will as well. So it'll be available, you know, at first it'll be available... Uh, the first edition, the commercial cut, the hour and a half, the, the two-hour version will be hopefully on streaming sites. I mean, the, the, the Blu-ray will be available via our website, corpsegreens.co.uk, or it'll be available in shops. It won't be, it'll be a proper release. You know, it'll be available, you know, at all good retailers. <laughs> I know, I, I, like, throughout this interview, I've always been like, so where can people find this? Where can I find this? With this Robocop, I'm like, no, where can I find this? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very, yeah, very important gonna, to me. It's, it's going to be readily available. I think, I think the weird thing about Friday Night is, is that even though it's been really successful, and it's a great dark Friday Night, um, um, we haven't had time to go into it, but it really is, you know, Eastwood Allen, who's our editor on Friday night and on Robocop, amazing job that. It's, what, it's a perfect doc, what we wanted. That, uh, you know, people still don't know it exists. People go, I don't know it's a Friday documentary because it was so under the radar and it was limited edition, you know, 3,000 copies. It's on Shudder, I said. It was on Shudder. It was on Shudder uh, via Amazon at one stage. Uh, but it's now it's on, obviously, on the Blu-ray release. It's on the Eureka, Eureka release as well. And I think it's on... An Amer- uh, a Japanese uh, release one, I think. Um, but again, people don't know about it. Whereas I think hopefully Robocop, because it's going to be a commercial release and it's going to be, a, you know, kind of have a good marketing campaign behind it as well and obviously be all official. Uh, hopefully people will be able to get it a lot easier than the other projects and not end up paying city prices on eBay for it years <laughs> after. And, and this is an opportunity for me to shamelessly plug my episode that I did on Robocop a couple of years ago, which is still oh, really? available on the main feed. Oh, yeah, we, oh. we got into a very, very, you know, phil- philosophical discussion about the meanings of, of Robocop Oh, and, and the satire of the ultra violence and things like that. So is a I, I absolutely adore that movie and I'm I'm so delighted well, that that you're working on it. I can't wait to see it. Well, hopefully, you can do a review uh, on your show of the documentary when it's out oh, as well. You, you, yeah. you can guarantee I'll do that. You can count yeah. on it 100. Um, percent You will enjoy. It. You genuinely enjoy. It. I, I'm so impressed of it, the work of it, visually stunning. It really is. You know, the motion graphics and the design that Eastwood has done. It's like no other documentary you've seen, and I came saying that, and it, it genuinely isn't. It's it's something really special. So I want to tell you. I really want to just circle back to how I how I got to following you on Twitter a few week, a few weeks ago. <laughs> this, we go, yeah. this, I want to just basically explain how this all happened. And you know the the interesting thing is uh, some of these documentaries that you worked on, I, I had seen, I, I had seen them. Like I mentioned the uh, the Return of the Living Dead one, I, I had seen that one already. I was just going through YouTube, and sometimes I'll go down the YouTube rabbit hole, and a suggested video came up for Police Academy, some one of the Police Academy yeah. movies, and then I clicked that on, and then there was an interview with Steve Gutenberg that he was giving to a local Chicago television station, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. he was just sort of kind of like just a throwaway, yeah, oh, yeah, and, you know, I was. Do an interview for the documentary on police academy i'm like documentary on police academy yeah. 
And like these were quintessential movies. I was born in 1978, and I it became sort of a rite of passage. Every yeah. year, a new Police Academy movie would come out, and we would watch it. And I know that I like to say I know more about at least the first six than than anyone should. I I, yeah. I love those films, and so I said that that created a call to action, Gary. I said, okay, I need to know who's doing this documentary. <laughs> so I Google police academy documentary and and the first result is what what an institution and i said well who's yeah. directing this and gary smart let me pull gary smart up on imdb oh wait a second i've seen these movies. and that's <laughs> and literally that's and then i i follow you on twitter you you follow me right back i immediately message you and you know two weeks later here we are talking so yeah. the power of steve gutenberg let's just say so so i have to ask and you knew i'm sure you knew this question was coming we we've got the horror movies We've got <laughs> RoboCop. I'm really, really excited for the Police Academy documentary, but you have to explain to me, and, and the fact that you you and your company are the ones making it, and I know how yeah. great your documentaries are. I have to ask, where does this idea come from? Okay, so I love Police Academy. When, I, when we did the book, The Complete History of Terminal Dead, I had an idea to do The Complete History of Police Academy book instead. Obviously, back then we were just we were writing. You know, we weren't kind of a production company making horror, and uh, it kind of never it fizzled out. Cause obviously, things is you know as life does, things things were happening. And then a couple of years ago, Chris couldn't come to the states the one year to do a project. You know, he just he was getting married, and he's like, you know, I can't come this year. You know, because again, we got we had to go in the holidays, and you know, and so what what should we do this year? We got to do something. We got to do a project. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to try Police Academy because I love I, I love the films. I like yourself. I was born in '82, so I'm a few years younger than you, but. But as a kid growing up, Police Academy was big for me, you know, because it was very much like the British kind of horror comedy. Sorry, horror. Um, you know, we had the Carry On films here. There was 32 of them, but Police Academy films were very much in the same vein. And funny enough, when I interviewed Paul Muslansky, the producer, he said he based the comedy on Police Ca on the Carry On films. So even as a kid, I knew there was a connection between the two. And I said, I'm going to just try and do it, you know, why not? So I just reached out. I kind of knew of Paul Muslansky anyway, because obviously huge, obviously being a Police Academy fan, but we interviewed um, uh, a guy called Hugh Armstrong from a film called uh, Death Line, which was also called Raw Meat in America, which was about kind of like, you know, underground, uh, London, London, uh, sorry, the London Underground, you know, kind of like a cannibal living in there back in the 70s. Paul McClancy had, had produced that, and I loved that film. So I, I emailed Paul and said, you know, I love raw me i love you know the performance in there it's a great film i also love police academy which is weird this is our resume we sort of done before i'd love to do a documentary on it but i said you know i can't do it without your help i can't you know you are you you know you're the father of police academy you produce all the films you produce for tv series a cartoon series i've got to have you on board if I could. it's a bit like what happened with tom holland on friday night we got tom on board and it snowballed and i went we can't and he said he messaged back so let's have a phone call let's have a chat you know i'm not gonna commit to anything yet so we arranged a call and I just told him how much I loved the films and what they meant to me. And I think, you know, and that as a kid, they were, they were huge in my life. You know, I used to play Police Academy. My friends used to play as characters. I had the action figures, you know, from the cartoon series. And again, like yourself, I couldn't wait for a, a film to come out. I remember going to watch Mission to Moscow on my own because <laughs> no one else would come and see it because it's a Police Academy film. And it was like, even, even that, I like, you know, a lot of people give it a lot of, you know, the seventh film. It's not that great. But again, it's still Police Academy to me. It's still, you know, it's still part of a legacy. Uh, and that, that was it. Kind of, Paul got on board, and we started asking people. 
And then we got Leslie Easterbrook and we got GW Bailey and we got, once we got Tim Kasaransky, he then got us Bobcat Golfway. And everyone said, you're never going to get Bobcat. You're never going to get Bobcat. So we got Bobcat. We got Winslow and we got we literally everybody apart from Gutenberg, as this always happens to us. There's always one person you just cannot get. And I said, you know, I said, fuck it, we're going to do it. You know, we've got enough people involved in it. The seven films, Gutenberg obviously is huge and important to it, but he's in four films out of the seven, you know, and it's not just about Gutenberg's characters, it's about all the characters, about the, your proctors, and it's about your, your, your sweet chucks and whatnot. Let's just do it. And obviously we got, obviously, Paul on board. And we started trying to engage with Steve and getting told no, no, he doesn't want to do it, he's not interested. And then he agreed to do it and he said he'd do it only, no problem, I'll do it, on the set of the next film. <laughs> okay, that ain't going to happen, is it, for a while? You know, it's not, it's not, I think, as much as I love Police Academy, I think the time for that comedy isn't here and, you know, it needs to be, and if it happened again, it wouldn't be Police Academy as we know it. It would be something crude and something, even though Prickhead was crude, it was crude, innocently crude. It would be just tits and cocknets, all it would be, do you know what I mean? And, and shagging and stuff like that. So, anyway, and then when we got to the States, we interviewed everybody, and everyone, everyone was trying to get um, Steve on board, including uh, Maslansky and including Fern Champion, who was the uh, casting director. I kept saying no. And then I reached out to him. So, listen, I said, I had his email, and I thought, oh, I'll just, you know what? Again, fuck it. I'll just email him myself. I email him. So, listen, I'm a big fan. I know, obviously, you know, you don't want to talk about it, but I just want to say, you know, it means a lot to me. It's a big part of my childhood. This is my first kind of directing of a, of a documentary. You know, I've worked on all these others, and I chose this one to be the one I want to direct because it's a passion project for me. Please, you know, will you be involved? You received email me straight back? No. But he said, I want you to come to – I'm doing a show tomorrow in L.A. And I was in L.A. at the time, obviously, shooting – uh, at the Hollywood Collectors Fair. I want you to come as my guest to that show and we'll have a chat. I thought, oh God, you know, this is good. So we went to the show and he was there and he came over, just gave us a hug, chatted to us, you know, gave us like passes to the back, you know, we meet the rest of the cast. We would already met anyway. And yeah, we were introduced to, you know, it's like these are the filmmakers doing the documentary on, on um, Police Academy. And the answer was still no. So I thought, why is he saying no? And in the end, he said yes in the end. Eventually said yes, and the reason we said no was because he was, he said he was so he's so precious and so protective on Police Academy, he didn't want to revisit it to exploit it because he wanted to, to remember it for what it was, and I think he didn't want it to be an expose on it where you're ripping it to pieces and you and you're dissecting it. And he said, but I wanted you know I wanted to remain kind of like innocent, and I said we're not trying to do it. What we're trying to do, obviously, is celebrate this legacy. And he got interviewed. He gave an amazing interview. He genuinely did. He, he, he sat down for two, I think it was two hours, two and a half hours, articulate research question answers. And I'd already edited most of the doc because I, I had to then go back into it to put Steve into it. And it was like Steve became Steve and, and um, Paul McClancy became the. You always have one person normally who's your narrative flow naturally. Sometimes people least expect they become your kind of like your storytellers. And Steve became one of them storytellers then. Obviously, he dips off after number five because obviously he talked about the beginning of five. He's not in five. He's not in six. He's not in seven. He's not in the series. It comes back later, on, obviously, for the for the legacy, and and that was it. Really, kind of, you know, it, it's we're at a stage now where the documentary is is kind of ready to a degree. It's been edited completely. It's four hours long because it's seven films and a TV series, and it, we covered a TV series, a cartoon series, and the, the seven films in detail. 
Um, so it's, it's done. Um, what uh, the next stage of it is as soon as Nick, our editor, finishes please, uh, Pennywise, he's taking the project then to refine it and tighten it up and just do some motion graphics. So it really, it would be released, not well, hopefully, the release schedule will be the plan is Robocop, Pennywise, Icon, and then Police Academy. Okay. Icon is, for those listening, he's uh, the film he's referring to, Icon, is about Robert England, which yeah. I have... I've never met Robert England, but I've talked to uh, quite a few people that have met him. And the general consensus that I've always received about Robert England is he's a delightful person and a storyteller for yeah, days. Yeah. So tell yeah, me about yeah, your experiences yeah. uh, interviewing Robert England. Again, weird experience. So we were told Robert doesn't do many interviews, really. And if he does, he has to be paid, you know, because he's one of a bit like the Weller situation. Weller... We don't do an interview if he's paid a substantial amount of money, and I mean substantial amount of money. Um, and we were told kind of the same thing with Robert. You know, Robert knows his worth. You know, Robert, he's Freddy Krueger. You know, he, 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 he's living now. And there's no, and again, there's no disrespect to Peter Weller. That's what these people, you know, that's their jobs now to basically do interviews and get paid to do them. So we were told, you know, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to pay him a lot of money, you know, whatnot. Oh, here we go. And um, I just wrote to Na- Na- Nancy. I had her email. Nancy's uh, Robert's wife. And she's kind of his gatekeeper a little bit, kind of his protector. And he's got an agent who straight away would say no. You know, no matter what goes to him, he says no all the time. I think he's passed away actually recently, that, 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 that chap did. But anyway, I emailed Nancy. Just said, again, huge fan. I've got top actors in my in my life. Freddie was huge for me. Tim saying these things are huge, but they were, you know, Freddie, yeah, yeah. Police Academy, uh, Freddie Krueger, I had, you know, posters of Freddie Krueger on my bedroom door at the age of like, you know, four. You know, I was obsessed with Freddie Krueger. You know, I was the kid who was going to nursery school with a VHS copy of Nightmare on Street 2 you know, and lending it to my friends. You know, I was getting out for Christmas. You know, we were allowed in my house to watch horror. And Robert was just, you know, was, was like a huge part of my childhood again. So I wrote to him, you know, real, you know as you do, heart on your sleeve, why I want to do it. This is different to what we've done before. This is about someone's career. And we want to show people that he's more than just Freddy Krueger. That this, you know, is it being, is it a curse or a blessing to be Freddy? Because you remember for one thing, but at least you'll remember for something. That's yeah. not a lot of people can say about, you know, not, not a lot of people can say they're remembered. So I've met actors, won't go into names in our projects, where you can just tell there's a bitterness and resentment for the character they, they, they remembered for because they think they're better or they should have done more. And I'm sitting there thinking, but you're being remembered. You know, you've got a queue around a lot getting autograph. That's a lot of people can't say. A lot of actors go for their careers and just do standard work in standard films and TV. Yes, I mean, you know, someone like Don Cowper, you know, he's well known for, you know, uh, Return of the Dead. But, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying he passed away and he was living in a, a trailer park, a retirement trailer park in Yucca Valley, middle of nowhere. And But, you know, he was remembered, but he wasn't remembered as much as, say, Robert is Robert would always be remembered as Freddy Krueger. You know, he would always be remembered as that. And that's what people queue from round the block for his autograph. I went to Germany and he was there. I was doing my own kind of stuff. And I remember watching his queue thinking, that fucking queue has not stopped for three days. You know, he's raking it in for a start. But the reason why he was so long, every single person that came to him, he was talking to. Yeah. You know, he was chatting away. I've been to conventions with Dom where I've sat there and I, I will mention names, you know, um, the funds, Henry Winkler. And literally it was like autographed by, autographed by, autographed by. 
and 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 Don was criticised for that because Don was like talking to people. Don would chat and talk about the weather and talk about what he had for dinner and like people were hugging him and and you know, it's like people going, "Oh, there's a queue." But you get an experience and saying, "Robert, you get an experience, you're Robert." So I already knew he was a warm and kind of guy. So I kind of I played on that to a degree, but I also played on the fact that he's more than just Freddie. So that was the pitch we gave, and thank God Nancy got back to me and said, "Robert wants to talk to you." And then, can you are you available at five o'clock on so and so day? Robert will call you. Oh, fuck, you know, I'm shitting myself. Robert calls. Yeah, okay, sounds good. What? Tell me the pitch. Okay, this is not just about Freddy. Freddy's important. Yeah, I understand that. He said Freddy's got to be in there, but I don't want to protect Freddy Krueger fully. He said, I'm not stupid. I understand Freddy sells, and Freddy's what people remember me for, but I want you to talk about my other stuff. I said, Robert, we'll talk about Buster and Billy. We'll talk about, you know, um, Urban Legend, Wishmaster. We'll talk about uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Stay Hungry film you did. And we went for all this, and he went, okay, I'm in London in next month uh, on so-and-so date. Uh, I want you to come for a meal with me, uh, okay? So that month came, went went by, and then we invited us to meal in London, and we basically, again, we got him to agree to it then, like, fully. And it snowballed then. People wanted to come on board and talk about it. You know, we've got Bill Mosley, we've got Tony Todd, we've got Peter Atkins, we've got Dennis Christopher, we've got 30 people talking about Robert's career. So the documentary is literally about Robert being an icon, up there with Lugosi and Peter oh, Cushing yeah. and yeah. Christopher Lee, being Freddy Krueger, being this kind of, and how he made Freddy Krueger, who's basically Freddy Krueger is a charm molester, you know, yet charm, charm molester who's become a pop culture icon. Really, you know, when you think about Freddy Krueger is, Freddy Krueger is not a nice being, but everybody loves Freddy Krueger because it's Robert playing him and Robert comes through at makeup and that charm's there. And we've got a brilliant doc. I'm really happy with it. Again, it's, we're in the fifth draft at the moment of the edit. I've got a meeting on Thursday this week, I think it is, just to go through the final stages of that. And it's like a two-hour documentary about Robert's life. And it's just it's just beautiful, really. And it really shows Robert as his kind of raconteur, down-to-earth, caring, really nice guy. It's not an arse-licky thing. It's not a, you know, egotistical massage. It's about a character actor's journey who fell into a role, became iconic, but actually... You break down the layers, there's something, something more there. Robert should be playing in big stuff. Thankfully, Robert's just been obviously cast in Stranger Things season four. Yeah. You know, so he should be in stuff like that. You know, he, he shouldn't he shouldn't have to be remembered just as Freddy Krueger. He should be in more mainstream stuff. So hopefully it will happen. Hopefully he'll have a renaissance now anyway. And I think we've come at the right time. Let me just say this, Gary, real quick, because I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. We've been chatting for about an hour and 20 minutes and, fine, yeah. and, and you're listening. I'm listening to you talk about the Robert England documentary, the police academy documentary, the Robocop, the Pennywise documentary. You are working on the show, your, your anthology series. I have to ask you, Gary, do you force yourself to have a day off? Is there any free time for you? Do you set aside? No. Uh, there's one day I, I'm just going to sit on the couch and do nothing because it sounds to me like. And I know I said this when we first started chatting. And I, yeah. said that thing. I know you're pretty busy, but after talking to you, it's like I'm I'm getting almost a little bit of anxiety at how busy you are. And it's, I've, I've, I've got to be busy. That's the thing. I, you, obviously, people won't see stuff because it's a podcast, yeah. but you'll be able to see it. I've started doing special effects stuff now. Yeah. I was taught by Stuart Cameron how to do kind of prosthetics and silicon. So now I've set up a side business. I'm doing stuff like, you know, like that and that's that's Fred a, Gwynn from Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, I, I, I like to be busy. I can't I can't not be busy. And I think I think because I said to you before, when I started doing it, I was working. I'm still working now. You know, um, I'm working home at the moment because of lockdown. But um, 
I started up. I've obviously had to sacrifice other stuff in life because you have to obviously when you want when you got when you got a goal and you want to go somewhere. Yeah. And there's obviously things you have to sacrifice. But I always think back, and I, I say, I'm stupid, and say again, when you come from where I've come from, and I say it to Neil, I say it to Adam as well, where you know I came from a again, I'm not sure what you call them in America. I came from a council estate, which basically was a, a low income kind of area, like the, like the projects, basically you get in the state. I came from a place like that in, in Birmingham, you know, low de- high deprivation, you know, nobody in my f- friend group or, or family would ever have dreamt about me meeting people who have met and been involved and working with. And, you know, and I always wanted to do something more. I always wanted to, you know, to, be somebody or be involved in stuff. And the weird thing is now I've kind of became come involved now in the history of Return of the Living Dead, my favourite film. We released a graphic novel this year, or last year, 2020, a continuation of a story based on Don Kaufer's uh, original treatment uh, of Return of the Living Dead sequel. I've, ca- I've kind of become part of that kind of franchise now. Chris has become part of the Robocop franchise because of his connection to it. You know, I, I, we've become part of Howraiser. People know us the Howraiser guys now. It's really weird. It's like, you wouldn't have dreamt about that 10 years ago. You wouldn't have dreamt about it when you were a kid. And I think that's what drives me really is because, you know, I'm quite a creative person. I want, I want to do stuff. I couldn't not do it now. I couldn't not. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think if you started having like kids and whatnot, you, you, you wouldn't be able to do it, you know, and you wouldn't be able yeah. to. So you have to make a choice really what you want to do. Do you want to pursue it? And hopefully, hopefully we'll get to a stage one day where it will, it will, it will, Make or break us, really, I think it will. We're going through a weird situation at the moment in life. Lockdown has not helped anybody in the industry, but for us, where we've got all these documentaries out, we've, got, we've done a book on American Horror, American Horror, a book on uh, American Wealth in London, book on Lost Boys, book on Return of the Living Dead, two books on Return of the Living Dead, a book on Friday Night, a book on Hellraiser, documentaries on Robocop, Pennywise, Police Academy, blah, 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 a TV series, prosthetics, an action figure of Peter Vincent we've released. We've released a graphic novel. Yet we're still having to fight daily, obviously, to get obviously our work out there and be recognised. And, and also, obviously, you know, we're still having to get keep down day jobs, really. Hopefully, the dream will be, obviously, that something takes off. Maybe it's a series. This year should be a good year for us, 2021, because we'll, we our business strategy now has been more kind of like professionalised with our new producer, Hank, Hank Stars, because... Is now going to be commercial. Where what we weren't commercial before, we were underground cult. You know, we would, and which is great. But and the, the fans like that. But for us, it's not great because, you know, we we. And I have I have a little rant for one second. Is that the frustrating thing that we get really is you know we get abuse sometimes on Facebook from people who genuinely obviously want to see the projects released. Of course, they genuinely want to see them. You know, and they, they support the Kickstarter is what we've done. They don't understand obviously the process it takes, and you know they think you can release something really quick, and we could release something really quick, but it wouldn't be the quality we want it to be. We haven't got the money that say someone like Eighties Horror Doc who just released an amazing documentary. Yeah. They raised a half a million pound. Robocop, we raised thirty thousand pound for Robocop. We put sixty thousand pound of our own money, our own company, and so the profits we made from Fright Night and Brewster independently. For Fright Night Bruce, Fright Night Leviathan, we put straight into Robocop. We never took a salary. We've never taken any money from the company, you regards to our, you know, for ourselves, other than obviously when we've gone to America and obviously produced stuff. We've interviewed all these people, and people still say, oh, it's a con, you know, it's never going to be released, it's all rubbish, they're taking the money and run. And I always argue, this is the worst con in history. We've spent, we've, 
we raised 30 grand. We put 60 grand of our own money in. We've interviewed 100 people. We've got footage to prove it. And, and over an hour of footage we released, yet it's a con and we're all sitting on the beach in Barbados. And I think that's the frustrating thing where we've got to start that decision's going to come eventually that make or break where can we continue genuinely where we are, as you said, slugging our guts off and working full time and doing all these different projects. And the only reward we get at the moment, obviously, is the gratification that we're doing something, you know. That I'll show you that Fred Gwynn head then. Again, people can't see, but the Pet Cemetery. as a fan, I want one. You can't buy one. So you make one yourself. Yeah. I'm a fan of, of Hellraiser. Nobody bothered make a documentary on that. So you make one yourself. Fright Night, no one bothered doing one, make one yourself. Robocop, you know. And we're doing things that we want because we're fans as well. And we want, you know, we're passionate about and I, I'm not saying it's easy to do because they're not, but it's having that passion to do it and obviously and and kind of like and drive to do it. But again, it's got to be profitable in the end. It's got to be a stage where you go, okay, we've been doing this 15 years and we're still, I'm going to work every morning at, you know, at nine till five. And that will limit us what we can do as well. I mean, Chris has got married now. Chris is starting a family. That will limit Chris, you know, to a degree. And his work, obviously, as soon as a kid comes along, you know, he's going to be, it's going to be fucked. Literally, because you know he's not going to be able to go to America for like three weeks on a truck and shoot a documentary because he's got commitments. And we were lucky that Rachel, Chris's partner, is really supportive of the, pro- of the project, you know, and our, our work. But I'm sure when she's got a kid in her arms and he's swanning up for three weeks, she's not going to be supportive then. <laughs> so it's, it's just weird. Yeah, so it's like. I can't remember what the question was. But no, 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 it's fine. It's I, think fine. I, had a, I had a rant that was it, I think. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 but, it's good. But people in the same boat as us, and we're lucky we, we work as well. I think that's the, the, the beauty in the, in the current situation in, 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 across the world is that we work in a, in a secure job. You know, I work in education, barely secure, because no matter what happens with a lockdown, children still need to be taught, buildings still need to operate, education systems still need to be in place we will still be paid by the government we're very very lucky there's people i know who are independent and freelancers who are literally on their asses now because there's no nothing being filmed over here to film something so expensive because of insurances and people being scared to film we haven't we haven't shot a ditty this year for a year we've not shot a dark, dark ditty we knew we were shooting them every six months and we've not it's just too risky for us to shoot at the moment a lot of our cast are older you know and again trying to raise funds at the moment is ridiculous so there's people who are worse off us we are lucky that we you know we are in full-time work and you know if i were to the risk and jump ship from education a year ago two years ago i would be screwed now freelance because obviously the situation the world is in really it's a horrible situation yeah, no, no, you're right. Oh, yeah. We need, well, to, bring, we need to bring it back up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say, to wrap things up on a, uh, on, a, on a more positive note, can you uh, maybe give me some type of exclusive as far as ideas that you might have for other documentary subject matters you may or may not want to tackle someday down the road? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't, we've done uh, Robocop, so the next ideal step for us would be terminator the next step would yes. be. <laughs> obviously schwarzenegger is is hard to get but i think once you get him you're laughing with someone like him i think once you get him in in your camp you're kind of okay chris is very keen on on uh a leaf weapon franchise hmm. you know with richard donner and 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 uh mal gibson and whatnot it's difficult because horror's kind of been done now horror has so what i you know you've got your not around fruit spin out you've got your friday 13th you've got your halloween documentaries Chainsmaker, you, you kind of like. You, I know people are working on a child's documentary at the moment, so you kind of like done with the horror. 
I like the idea of the icon stuff. I genuinely do. You know, I like, you know, we interviewed Robert, did an icon. I, my, I envisioned an icon series, to be honest, that would have like, you know, icon the Lance Henriksen story, icon the Bill Mosley story, icon, you know, the, you know, I don't know who else, I think somebody, you know, <laughs> another <laughs> horror star. Yeah, I mean, Kane Hodder's already done a documentary already. Sure. But I think, but I think there's room for that reader. I think because the way this has been formulated with the biography kind of element of it, it's someone's life, which is really important. The issue we've had with Rob is, as we're back on that, is when you watch Danny Trejo's documentary, which is brilliant, and you watch Kane Hodder's documentary, brilliant, they've all had things in their lives which are kind of like traumatic. You know, Kane Hodder was burned. Yeah. Danny Trejo went to prison. You know, he was literally in prison. Robert's done nothing like that. Robert's just been a good guy. And he's like, wow, fuck, we need a spin. We need something. <laughs> but the spin for us obviously was that this guy became Freddy Krueger, became this horror icon. And actually, he's got a wealth of obviously work behind him. You know, you think about V before it, you know, he was playing the friendly alien before. Yeah. So it's kind of, that's my, that's my kind of concept. I mean, I think we'll pursue a Terminator. I think once we get Robocop out, and people see how good it is and I think genuinely it is. I think the next step for Eastwood and he, I haven't mentioned Eastwood that often Eastwood's our editor he's, a, he's amazing he's such a talented guy I think once we get Robocop out of the way I think we'll probably pursue uh, Terminator then hopefully and uh, I'm sorry listeners but there's a few questions I'm going to ask Gary uh, off the record because <laughs> I've got a few on uh, so I'm sorry you're not going to get a chance to hear those questions uh, Gary if if people want to follow you on social media, if people want to check out your production company's websites, how can they do that? It's great. I mean, it's great. Uh, the website is www.courtscreenings.co.uk. Uh, you can search for me on uh, Facebook. I've got a writer-producer page on Facebook. I've also got my personal one. I'll add people. Except the products because my my industry are working, but obviously filmmakers and film fans, I always add. You know, I think the most important thing is having a network of people around you. I genuinely feel that. I think Facebook has been amazing for a network and Twitter. And that's obviously how we, we met via yeah. Twitter. Twitter, again, it's just G Smart. You can search me on Bill Dark if he's creator. Instagram, the same. I'm, I'm quite easy to find now, I think, because of that work we've done. You just don't, you type Google and yet we come up pretty, pretty easily a bit now. And each project's got its own personal page as well. So Robocop's got, Robodoc's got a page. Pennywise's got a page on Facebook. Icon's got its own page. Police Academy's got its own page as well. Update as much as we possibly can. We're not going to update them weekly because obviously what you're going to say, we're editing scene 10. You know, we update as <laughs> much as we possibly can. But yeah, we're pretty easy to find online. Awesome. Well, Gary, I, I'd, I'd love to invite you back on the show again because there's there's nice. there's yeah. more of your career that we didn't even get a chance to really, <laughs> really talk about. But uh, let me just end this by saying thank you so much for, for taking an hour and a half out of your day to talk to me. I know how busy you are. So thank you. It's no. been a real pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. It genuinely has. So as a cheer on, you know, talking to people like yourself, obviously, is brilliant for us to get our work out there because sometimes you do go under the radar. It's been brilliant questions. I've, re I've really, really enjoyed it, genuinely. Wonderful. And it's nice to talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, Gary, I, I know we'll talk soon. So, uh, and, and definitely uh, enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>